we have in our New Testament two different accounts of the birth of Jesus. One from the book of Matthew and the other the book of Luke. They give different perspectives and different points of view, but they were not the only witnesses. And we're going to read from the beginning of Luke's gospel that there were other witnesses and why Luke felt he had to write. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after having investigated everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things which you have been, about which you have been instructed. That's a really interesting introduction. Uh, apparently, Luke was not satisfied that all the various stories that were passed down by first-hand witnesses um, of Jesus' birth uh, were all properly understood and came together, and there may have been some which were not uh, accurate, and he wanted to correct them. So he did research. We know Luke was a physician. He was a scientific mind, and so he talks about that research which he did in order to get the story straight. So it is very important to see where Luke, Luke starts his account because he's researched this carefully and he's thought about it. So in verse five, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. As we find out uh, later in Luke's first chapter, Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Therefore, she was an aunt to Jesus. And so Zacharias, who's the subject of our story today, Zacharias was old Uncle Zach. And he was old. And Elizabeth was old. We find out later that their son, would become John the Baptist, who in his own right was a great preacher and leader and revealer of God. And uh, John then was the forerunner of Jesus. And when Jesus came along, John said to his followers, I must get out of the way and you have to look at him. But all that was in the future. All Zacchaeus knew was that he and Elizabeth were childless. Now, Zacchaeus is described as a priest in the temple. And let me give you a little background. The, that part of the world was very complicated. And if you look at the history, you find the rule of uh, various kings and kingdoms and empires. Part of Israel's journey, though, was her spiritual journey, and it centered on the temple. The temple, the location where God's presence was symbolized for his people. 
And that temple, and here's a, a timeline of the history of the temple. It starts uh, way over on your left, I believe it is. And it starts with the tabernacle that God established, told uh, Moses to establish in the wilderness. And that happened uh, sometime between uh, 1200 and 1400. And uh, that was a time when God revealed himself, especially to the Israelite people and said, I want to make a special covenant with you. And he even gave a covenant name. And he said, the way I want you to worship me is in this tabernacle, which was a tent. And in the desert, they worshiped God in a tent. And that tent had three parts to it. And there was a holy place and then a holy of holies. And then there was an outer section. And that's the way they worshiped during that 370 years from the time that God revealed this to Moses and the time when David took the throne and David said, God is leading me to build a permanent place, not a tent. And David never got to do it, but his son Solomon, who was a very wise man and a very rich man, built the temple, what we know as the first temple or Solomon's temple. That happened uh, about 960 before Christ. So the temple became, it was magnificent. And people from around the world noticed this temple. And so this temple was the place of worship and the center of worship. There's all kinds of description of temple worship in the Old Testament. And for the next um, 370 years, for the next 370 years, that temple was the place of worship. But then in the intrigues of the politics, finally, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed that beautiful temple and they took the Israelites captive. Then it took a little while, but they got back to rebuilding the temple. They couldn't, they didn't have the resources. So Ezra's temple, we can read about this in the Old Testament, was a much more humble temple. And uh, they worshiped there and that they've tried to follow all the laws that were given to Moses. Now, Herod, this is 20 years before Christ. Now, that Ezra's temple had been the place of worship for almost 500 years. But Herod wanted to build a name for himself and he added to it and enhanced it and made it almost as glorious as Solomon's temple. It was Herod's temple. And, but the Jews never accepted that because they didn't like Herod and he was not a person they approved of. So they call the first temple Solomon's temple and the second temple is Ezra's temple, which Herod added a little decorations to. So the first temple was in operation for 370 years and then for 585 years, the second temple was in operation, was the center of worship. And then in 70 AD, the Romans came in, finally destroyed the pesky, rebellious people. And as a symbol of this, they destroyed the temple. Now, since 70 AD, that's, you know, 70 years after the birth of Christ, since then, there has been no temple. There has been no temple. If you see a Jewish synagogue with the word temple on, you got to put that in quotes because that's not really a temple. That's the synagogue and they have given that name and that's uh, 
a pattern today. But the temple worship that was established in the Old Testament, over the last 3,000 years, the first 1,000, there was temple worship. For the last 2,000, there has not been. That's how long it's been. So Zechariah was there in the last days of the temple. And it was a glorious temple. The ceremonies were awesome. It involved hundreds of priests and Levites and people responding. It involved uh, uh, drums and cymbals and trumpets and all kinds of displays. Unfortunately, it involved a lot of animal sacrifice that we know about. But today, we're focusing on a temple practice that happened even more intimately than that, and that is the burning of incense. And so we're going to go back to Luke chapter 1 and begin with verse 6. And um, excuse me, uh, did I miss something? I think it's verse 6. Uh, yes, both of them were righteous before God. This is um, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, living uh, blamelessly according to all the, the regulations of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. You do notice, by the way, that it was the woman's fault that they had no children. And then in, in verse 8, once, Zechariah, I have to explain this, Zacharias was serving as a priest before God, and his section was on duty. Now, there's a lot of evidence of how the priests served in the temple. In the first century, in Jesus' day, when the temple was still in its glory, that temple was served by about a thousand priests, and they, had, they took turns, and they were in different courses, and each course was, able, was serving in the temple for about two weeks a year, separated by six months. And when their course was serving and their family was on, they had particular tasks. One would offer animal sacrifices, one would prepare the animals, one would clean up afterwards, one would straighten out the various, they, they had to do all the custodial stuff too. And, uh, but the, the most honorable job was offering incense in the afternoon service. And the incense was offered just outside the holy place and it, it, it was burned. There were 11 different elements that went into this wonderful smelling incense. All had symbolic meaning. They were prepared by the priests and then the one who was, it was his turn to offer that sacrifice. He got to do that. This is the sacrifice Zacharias was offering that day the sacrifice of incense. And that incense symbolized the presence of God just before the Holy of Holies place. And it said, God is here. And that offering of incense was something every priest looked forward to. And the way they decided which priest of this particular course that was on duty, there were four or 500 on duty at a time, and which of the priests would get to offer the incense was very scientific. They drew lots. And uh, the lot fell on Zacharias. That was wonderful, just by chance. 
But once you get to do that, you can never do it again for the rest of your life. Because that was your opportunity and others had to get their chance as well. So here was Zechariah who had done his priestly duties for many, many years. How old was he? Do you think maybe 85? <laughs> and, 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 and never had gotten to do this. And there was the lot casting. Oh, what a, I'm, I don't know how he prepared for this. And he, he, he went in and did his duty and what a wonderful moment it was. So let me read again from verse eight. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. That's important to see this because only the priest was there at the temple altar. He had assistants who came in and helped him set it up and then they went outside. So the priest who offered the incense was absolutely alone before the presence of God. This moment that he had waited for all his life when the incense was burned and it smelled and the people could see the smoke of the incense from the outside and they knew it had been done. But the people were hushed during this time. They were all gathered out there. And then afterwards, the priest who had offered the incense, his great once in a lifetime moment, he came out and he blessed the people. This was an important moment, especially for pilgrims who came to Jerusalem and this was their once in a lifetime experience. Let's continue our reading with verse 11. Then, while he's doing this, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I don't, do you have your own picture of an angel? Yeah, I know. Mine is Judy, right? <laughs> but they, they were, you know, angels are kind of scary, actually. And uh, so this... <clears throat> Talk about being in awe in his special moment. Uh, here he was confronted one-on-one, -on -one, alone in that room, uh, with an angelic presence. And he was terrified. And fear overwhelmed him. And is this God's way of saying your life is over, you've come to this high point? Or maybe God was saying, you've been... You've been thinking impure thoughts and here you are before the altar and I'm going to strike you dead. Do you think that's what the angel was there for? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Okay, what was he praying? There were all kinds of prayers that they offered traditionally during this time. But there was one prayer in his heart that only the angel a representative God knew about. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. That was the special revelation that Zechariah had in this special moment. For he, uh, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice 
at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what's going to happen. That's the answer to prayer. That's my promise to you. Your son is coming. There's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of the virgin birth. There's no mention of this moment when Messiah is coming to earth. Now, this is the, the only recorded angel appearance uh, in the temple in all history. We have a lot of miraculous things, but different classic artists have tried to express what this looked like, and they've all had trouble. This is uh, William Blake, Englishman, uh, you may know for poetry, his attempt to express this. Um, this next one is by a French artist named uh, James Tassat also from the uh, uh, 1800s. Where's the next one? Okay, it'll come. And then uh, there's, there's a third one from um, Alexander. The one I like the best is this one actually from Alexander Andreevich Ivanov, uh, Russian. Uh, I don't know why I like that. It's just kind of weird which is the way I think I would feel. So when the angel appears, the awesome, overwhelming, fear-inspiring moment in Zechariah's, right at the middle of Zechariah's high point, his, his response is important in the biblical passage. Verse eight, Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man. My wife is getting on in years. <laughs> I mean, you, you said something mighty big there, angel. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, wait, wait, did he say he didn't believe? Yeah, he kind of did, because he was thinking in terms of what he, as a really old man, could do, what his wife, as a really old woman, could do, and he thought it was impossible. So the angel says, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. And so when he went out to bless the people, let's read verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak the blessing to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. So actually, Zechariah's inability to speak was a kind of testimony. Zechariah's 
Tell us what you experienced. Say, shut up. There are no words. And then in verse 23, kind of comes down to earth again. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. By the way, during the time of service, a priest usually moved from his home and actually lived at the temple so that he could be available. And when he came home, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. He said, you have, he's taken away the disgrace. Oh. Life has been cruel to women that it seems she had to bear shame for not having a child. And there are all sorts of physical reasons why she didn't have a child. That's the way the world has been. Now, I pointed out that we have this episode in the temple and that this wonderful thing happened to Zechariah at a magic moment in his lifelong ministry as a priest, but there's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of Messiah. There's only the mention of a birth to him and Elizabeth, his wife. But right after this comes the wonderful passage, and maybe, I don't know, I don't tell her what to do, but maybe Pastor Connie will preach on it next week. <laughs> what we know of as the Magnificat, when Mary has a visit from an angel. And when she is told that she's going to bear the one who will be the Messiah. And when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Remember that phrase. My soul magnifies the Lord. Here in the temple, everything was done to magnify the Lord. To, to increase the overwhelming vision of the, and experience of all the senses that happened in the temple. But Mary quietly magnified the Lord in her soul. Maybe that's why, why Luke began with Zechariah. Let me, let me make four observations about Zechariah's significance right at the beginning of this gospel. The first is that Zechariah brings a global perspective on the Christmas event. Haven't you ever, haven't you ever felt when you're trying to focus on the true meaning of Christmas that it's really hard to stay there because there's so many other sounds and noises and bright lights, and Christmassy things going on. Well, the truth is, life does go on. The truth is, most of the world, well, almost the whole world, instead of a man and a woman, a few shepherds, and a couple of cattle and sheep, didn't even notice the birth of the baby Jesus. And, and Zechariah's experience reminds us that the world just kept going. And what was really important that was happening 
happened so quietly. You know that verse of a little town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And so the global perspective reminds us that everything around us is not gonna stop because the Lord speaks to us because he reveals himself to us as savior. And then he also brings the religious perspective. A religious perspective, he's a priest in the high point of religious worship of the one true God in contrast to all of the pagan. They had wonderful temples as well. But this, this, this was the high point of the whole revealed religion of Judaism. And this priest chosen by Lot, an accidental agent, an, an, an old uncle with no kids, that this priest represented the religious establishment of his time. And, and he, didn't, he didn't see the Messiah in the angelic announcement. And it reminds us that religious people often miss the wonder because they're too busy doing religion. I heard a story recently and this uh, old fish was swimming upstream and two other fish were swimming downstream. So the one swimming upstream said, how's the water? And the two swimming downstream said, water? What's water? What's he talking about? They were so used to the water, they didn't realize the wonder of it, that it was what gave them life. And that's the way religion can be. Zacharias, he was pretty old then. Maybe he died fairly soon. We have no real knowledge. There are a lot of legends, but maybe he did believe in Jesus later on. We don't know, but we do know this. <clears throat> Scholars have looked at the history of the early church and they have found that there's no record of one priest of the temple who followed Jesus during his ministry or in the time of the early church. Not one priest converted from the orthodox religious practice which filled them with wonder the third perspective that uh, Zacharias brings is the male perspective, which is, of course, the only perspective. <laughs> but we indicated Elizabeth, and they, they were normal people expecting to have a child and didn't, and so it was her fault. Now, he didn't even have to say that because she was born thinking that. That was her destiny was to have a child, a male child, in fact, because that's the good kind. And so the disgrace was hers, the fault was hers, the shame was hers. Now, look at the contrast in what happens right after this with the birth of Jesus. The focus is on Mary. She didn't need a man. No man is necessary. 
ultimately, and this is our, our fourth perspective that we see in Zacharias, every individual looks at Christmas through his own eyes or her own eyes. How does this affect me? What does this mean to me? So Christmas memories are all very personal. And Zacharias, as well, was looking at the miraculous birth of his son as what it meant to him, the fulfillment of his dreams, his heir. He, he couldn't see beyond that to the implied prophecy that he would be the one to introduce the Messiah, which turned out to be true. The personal perspective, his son would be born was the focus, not that his son would introduce a savior who would be born. He can't see past John. And all of us as well have trouble seeing past what Christmas means to us personally and seeing what it means to hurting people around us or people who don't even know the Christmas story. And we are focused on our experience. I want to conclude by comparing these two visions. Zechariah's temple service was the highest and farthest Old Testament faith could reach. It was the epitome of the Old Testament consciousness of the presence in a committed relationship of the one true God. And Zechariah's a loyal worshiper stretches as far as he can when he offers the incense on the altar, but he can't quite reach. See the great temple. See the magnificence. I think there's a picture of one. And now, with that picture in mind, see this. Six months away, one degree of separation away, a virgin has her own angelic visit. Not in a magnificent temple, but in a barn-like manger. Not with the smell of incense, but with the smell of manure. Not focused on a revered old man in priestly robes, but on a naive young peasant girl who has no idea what's going on. I think that's why Luke introduces his gospel with this picture of Zechariah. It's, it's a passing of the torch from the highest aspiration of, of the Old Testament religion to humble beginnings of the new faith in Christ. It's the handing off of the ball to the runner who can carry it to the end zone. But that's really not a worthy caricature. It really is that the presence of God is now not symbolized by incense burning before a curtain in the holy place but the presence of God is in a baby. Jesus Christ, God made flesh, 
has come to dwell us, among us and in us. Thank you, Lord, for this glimpse through the eyes of a really sincere representative of the faith you brought to us in phase one of your revelation. But we thank you also for the fact that he passed it off to that young virgin and to phase two, which we celebrate this great season. In Jesus' name, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.